Well, we're on with Aaron Layton, who many of you may not have heard of before, and I had not either until a friend of mine referred me to a copy of his book entitled Dear White Christian. And I got to be honest with you, Aaron, that title grabbed my attention. And as a guy who's tried to write a couple books, the title seems to be the hardest part. And you, uh, you nailed it with that because it made me think and caused me to pick it up. And so I'm just so thankful that you have chosen to spend a little bit of time with us on this podcast and, yeah. and, uh, and share your heart. So why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you live, what you do, and then, and then we'll dive into the book. All right. Sounds good. First of all, Pastor, I am truly, uh, and I mean this, humbled uh, that you uh, read my book and uh, you know, found it helpful uh, and invited me on this podcast. Uh, um, as I shared, you know, before we were talking a little bit before we came on air, um, I told the Lord that I'd, I'd never, you know, write a book or anything like that unless I felt like He was behind it and inspiring it and that uh, I had something to say. So uh, this is truly, uh, uh, truly an honor for me as well. Uh, so I'll tell the audience a little bit about myself. I am black. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and um, I was born uh, in St. Louis. I still live in uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri. One of five children. And um, I-, I think, you know, kind of a pivotal thing in my upbringing was when I was a child, we moved from the city of St. Louis. Um, those who are familiar with St. Louis, there's North City. Um, but we also had uh, a family in East St. Louis across the across the uh, uh, river from St. Louis. Um, but we moved into a predominantly white working class neighborhood. Um, however, our extended family and our church, uh, they were in the city. They, they were in the part of the town that was predominantly black. Um, and uh, during the week, for the most part, we were in the suburbs because, you know, that's where our school was and and we were there. But we tended to spend time in the city um, with our extended family um, on the weekends. Um, and we also went to church uh, in Wellston, which was in the city. So I grew up in what seemed to me as a kid two different worlds. And that was the, the black world and the white world. Um, and I didn't understand it at the time, but I learned a lot about uh, inequality and systemic racism, not that I knew anything about those terms, but I could, I could see that things were different for, for blacks uh, and brown-skinned people, um, you know, uh, especially those who were poor, uh, you know, poor black and brown-skinned people. I, when we would drive from um, the neighborhood that we had moved into in the suburbs, when we would drive to the city, you would see things change, you know, in the suburbs, you know, there were parks, there were restaurants, you know, uh, things were clean, there were stores, and, uh, but as you would drive uh, into the city, you, things would change, um, you know, the streets uh, had potholes, they weren't well kept, if, you know, houses that, you know, may have burned down partially were just left that way, uh, there's, you know, there's trash, you, you know, you could, you could see, uh, you know, people that may have you know, be struggling with addiction, whether it was alcohol or, or substance abuse. And um, money was always an issue, you know, in those communities. And so, you know, that uh, was the reality of, of, you know, our extended family. And, and so uh, even my cousins, they're, the schools that they went to, um, 
and the schools that we were fortunate to go to were just drastically different. So as a kid, I just couldn't make sense of it. It, it seemed like the things in the county where where the whites were, um, things seemed to be peaceful and in order and, uh, you know, um, better, you know, as a kid trying to make sense. And so... Um, all those things, and I stored all those things in my mind, and I had questions about why is this? How did this get that way? And so, you know, those are those are some of the things that uh, you know kind of shaped me and formed my mind, um, you know, as as a child, but you know, even as even as a man today. So you write this book, and tell us why you felt like this needed to be written. What inspired this at the time it was written? And because it takes a lot of work to yeah. write a book and and to try to sum up a life of experiences and to 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 give honor to all those yeah. who have gone before you and yeah. and paid a serious price uh, for kind of some of the liberties that you have right now, but yet also feeling that sting of some of the ones that you don't. Yeah, tell us kind of what led to this. Why this book? Why yeah. now? Good question. Well. Um, the death of Michael Brown in 2014, um, it was a catalyst for the book. Um, it, it wasn't the primary reason that I wrote the book, but uh, it definitely was a catalyst. I wrote the book because I recognized that there was a certain emotional distance um, that I was experiencing from my white brothers and sisters in Christ around this dialogue concerning the death of Michael Brown and the Ferguson riots. You know, I recognized that I wasn't having the same type of conversations with my white brothers and sisters as I was having with my black family and friends. And um, I didn't recognize at the time, but it was just kind of curious. And I was like, you know, what is that all about? Um, but the there was a certain distance, I felt. Um, and what added to the distance was it seemed to me that my white brothers and sisters were silent on... Um, uh, this, you know, the incidents of, you know, Michael Brown's death and the Ferguson riots and different things. And um, I don't even know if I was necessarily wanting them to side with, you know, Michael Brown or African-Americans or as much as to say, to think through this and say, hey, you know, something doesn't seem right about this, Um and what is going on? And so that silence added to this isolation and what I, you know, uh, call in my book an emotional distance. And so I wrote the book to close the emotional distance. Um, uh, I felt like if I'm in the body of Christ and we're all in the body of Christ, you know, um, and there's this distance, uh, this emotional distance that's tied to how I have experienced and seen um, and think about racism in America. And within the body of Christ, I have white brothers and sisters who um, um, either think about it in a totally different way. Um, I just felt like, you know, that uh, that could be a problem that the devil could exploit, and we know that he does. And so I, I wrote it to help bring awareness um, uh, to my white brothers and sisters in Christ, and I felt like, hey, there are some vital things, some very basic and helpful things uh, that you need to know about the experience of African Americans. Not that I speak for all African Americans in America, but I think uh, my story and a lot of the way that I think about racism in America uh, is a is a very wide. Uh, 
experience that that many African Americans have in America. And so I, I wanted to bring awareness um, and I wanted to work at unifying the body of Christ uh, in America in such a way that it would not be as fractured as I saw it happening as it relates to the death of Michael Brown and the issues of racism. I think one of the things that um, uh, America, and I think the uh, evangelical church in America, I think they both underestimated where we were in race relations as a country. I think America and I think the evangelical church in America, the white evangelical church in America, thought we were further along so that when this death of Michael Brown in Ferguson and the Ferguson unrest happened, um, many were like, many white Americans and many white evangelical Christians were like, what is going on? And what is what is this? And I thought we were further along. And so those are a couple of the reasons that I, I, I wrote the book. Well, I, that's certainly a great uh, catalyst for, uh, you know, obviously writing the book. But I think that it's certainly, it struck a chord with me as a, as a kid that grew up in white America, white household, white high school, went to college primarily white, and then moved to Kentucky. And, and it, it began to be different for me. I began to see that I, I might have as what you call cultural blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most of our listeners would say, hey, we're not racist, yeah. uh, which I've heard is a key giveaway that you are, if you say <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> Never lead with that, right? Yeah. Not necessarily, um, yeah, it's not necessarily true, though. You're right. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, <laughs> anyway, I, I think most of our listeners would say that I'm sympathetic, and I, I think I uh, do what I can, but I, I think there's a lot of things we don't understand. So help us with some of our cultural blind spots. What are we missing yeah. um, when it comes to this, uh, this, well, as you said, cultural blind spots? Uh, I, think, I think one of the things uh, is to recognize that we all have cultural blind spots. And what I mean by that is Whatever cultural group that you're a part of, there are other cultural groups that you aren't necessarily a part of. And so um, there are these things, these cultural blind spots that are really um, vital and essential to the relationship growing and flourishing and really becoming deeper and deeper that if we don't know about certain things, they could hinder that. Mm-hmm. Um so, for, in, for instance, um, I had a student uh, last year who was, uh, he was Vietnamese, and I knew very little about Vietnamese culture. Uh, I knew very little about the country of Vietnam. And so, um, I just began to ask him questions from time to time, and we kind of, we kind of, we kind of uh, uh, you know, deepened our relationship. And, and I would just ask him questions about his parents, about his culture. culture. And there were so many things that I didn't know um, that could have been offensive that I would have never known. And so I had these, these cultural blind spots. Well, it was, you know, absolutely the same way. Um, as it relates to my white brothers and sisters, that I didn't know that before. Um, you know, there's a there's a challenge sometimes where you think, oh, okay, you know, like, 
in America, we've been dealing with, we've been dealing with, you know, racism, and we've been dealing with these things for so long. How could, you know, white people not know? Um, but as I, I travel the country, and I, you know, speak at churches and different organizations, and my audiences are primarily uh, white evangelical Christians, I've, I've lost track of how many say, Hey, I had no idea. You know, I read your book. I had no idea. You know, there were, uh, you know, one lady, I was at a school talking, a, a, a Catholic school, and she said, you know, I grew up in a town, and she said, you know, the whites lived in one part of town, the blacks lived in another part of town, but we all went to school together. And she said, I had black friends. And she said, it never occurred to me that their experiences in that town, in our school, were totally different from mine. And she said, I did not know. She said it never occurred to me. Hmm. And those are some of the things that, I, that, I, that I've heard more and more, which was enlightening to me because it, it, it helped defeat some of, the, um, uh, some of these negative narratives that the, the devil was uh, putting in my mind about uh, what, you know, my white brothers and sisters. Uh, so um, those cultural blind spots are there. Um, uh, and I think that uh, we can get at those, and I think it can help. It can help us all, um, you know, onto a deeper unity in Christ, but also really being able to get at um, and be advocates and uh, be a voice for a voiceless in some of these other issues of inequality in our in our communities in our nation. So before we get to some of the solutions that you outline in the book, and I'm sure you've seen play out, tell me how we unknowingly make the divide greater. Um, speaking specifically to your white brothers and sisters like myself, how do we make matters worse sometimes? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, think, I think there is, um, there can be an assumption um, on, uh, uh, there can be an assumption by whites that um, racism and ethnic partiality are kind of things of the past in America, but also the church. Mm. Um, I think um, ha- I think having this mindset that because I am a Christian and I love the Lord and I really do want His will for me, for my family, for my church, for my community, and for the world, that um, I am not and cannot be and I like to use more so than than being racist. Um, I, you know, I think I think we can get closer to not that there aren't races out there, but I think dealing with the phrase conscious and unconscious bias, unconscious mm. ethnic bias, uh, is 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 a better way is a better way to go. And I think for many white evangelical Christians, I think the thought of Hey, I am, you know, I am not racist or I'm not, I, I, I'm not biased. Um, I think that can put you in a place, a very dangerous place in being, continuing to walk in blindness to some of the, some of the systemic, uh, ethnic and racial stuff in our, in our society in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the greatest lies that any person, un- consciously and consciously could believe is that we are beings that can be impartial. Hmm. We can't 
But for so long, we think that we can, particularly those who are Christians, we think the Holy Spirit's operating in us. I am aware of sin, and therefore I do not show partiality. When in reality, um, the reality is that we are all partial. And and the what it what it does is if we if we the only thing that being partial means is that you're human. <laughs> mm-hmm. We are all partial. Now, what what makes things more problematic is if a person thinks that they can actually be impartial. Because if you know that, hey, like myself, I'll 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 talk about me. I will own the fact that you know what. I am partial. Aaron Layton is partial. I try not to be. I ask the Holy Spirit to help me, but I know that I am partial. I know that. Mm-hmm. But if I am aware of that, then the Holy Spirit can help me deconstruct and identify times when I am operating in a partial manner. Now, James 2 is all about how partiality is sin. I mean, James is clear. You should not show partiality. And I think, really, if, if you want to use kind of biblical language, we can replace racism with ethnic partiality. I think that's, that, that can be more help, helpful as you begin to kind of peel back layers and say, well, what is going on? When we think about, you know, um, the failing schools in America that are made up of, you know, poor brown-skinned um, people, uh, children, you know, at the end of the day, legislation and different things, there is some, you know, ethnic partiality uh, that, you know, uh, could be going on in those spaces. So all that to say is, number one, thinking that um, we are not partial. Everybody is. Even judges and law enforcement, and I am not against judges, I'm not against law enforcement, I'm not against lawyers, I'm not against jurors, but we have to be honest to say that you can take an oath, but it does not make you immune, right, mm. to being partial. At best, you can work and be aware of it. And so I think that's one thing. I think the, um, the other thing would be this, is that um, recognizing that uh, those African Americans or blacks that you may be in close community with, whether church, work, or neighborhood, um, you could have a misunderstanding that their experience in a shared world uh, is is very similar to yours. For example, with all of the Ferguson unrest and everything, I remember talking to my white pastor at the time, and I said, you know, this I, I've had three conversations with my son, who was 15 at the time. I said, I've had three conversations with him about what to do if he's pulled over, um, and I said, it just sucks that I have to have another conversation. I said, because historically, um, as my father taught me and those in the African-American community taught the African-American young men is a way to uh, of survival and, and the way that we should behave and what we should do with our hands and all those things. And I shared with my pastor, I said, Pastor, I said, you will never have to have these conversations. And I said, you know... Um, that just kind of sucks a little bit, right? And so mm-hmm. being able to recognize that you may be in a shared space, a community, with those who have a different ethnic background, but their experiences can still be um, drastically 
uh, different from yours. And the other an annoyingly uh, thing, how do we annoyingly create this divide, and you mentioned earlier, is just the cultural blind spots. I mean, you don't know uh, what you don't know. Um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned in the book, one of the, the, the white friend um, that I went to and said, hey, I don't understand the silence from my white brothers and sisters on Michael Brown and Ferguson. I was like, help me with this. And he said this to me. He said, you know, Aaron, he said, I'm, I'm a white guy. He said, I was born and raised in a white community. And he actually kind of joked, he's kind of a comical guy. He said, he goes, I'm as white as they come. He said, I'm the poster boy for white privilege. He said, but here's the thing, Aaron. He said, we don't understand it. We don't know what to say. And we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, I said, you know, that kind of makes sense. That would explain the radio silence out of my white brothers and sisters. I said, that would also explain uh, some of the inaction. But it also was encouraging to me because I said, hey, that's something we can do something about. So I know that there are many um, white believers and white people all over the country that say, hey, we don't understand you know, some of those things that African-Americans go through and other minorities. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. But the thing that I can say, and this was part of the book and also my organization Relate to Color, what we do is you can learn. And I've been so encouraged by so many white brothers and sisters like yourself, Pastor uh, George, that are leaning in to say, hey, um, I want to learn and I'm willing to do whatever I can uh, towards, you know, uh, the deeper unity and body of Christ and what the Lord is calling us all to. Um. Well, I, I appreciate that, um, and I, I think we could talk about this for days, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to give you one last question here, and I'd I just love for you to educate us. Give us three practical things that white Christians can do to help bridge this divide. Okay, that's, that's great. So the first I would say is just simply ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and ask this question, Holy Spirit, what am I not seeing? You know, what am I not seeing culturally? And then say, Holy Spirit, particularly those things that culturally it might be hard for me to accept. So that would be the first thing. Okay. The second thing it would, would be um, is to admit, you know, uh, if nothing else, as it relates to our theology, we can say the world has fallen. Um, and so to that degree, uh, the second thing is to admit, hey, culturally, I have no idea what it's like to be black or Hispanic or Asian or, or poor or, or any minority. Um, and, 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 and just to admit that and say, you know what? Um, someone may be sharing this experience, and it is not mine, and it's so different, and I want to understand. And it, it, uh, it because just because it is so different from mine doesn't mean that it's not true and it's not, it's not legitimate. And the last thing that I would say is this: um, commit to intentional learning from from other ethnicities. You know, in this case, we're talking about the relationship of white and black, and I think. I think that is the large, like the, the cultural divide, at least in America, because of the historic baggage. I think that the hardest divide um, and cultural, uh, uh, the, the cultural distance uh, is, is in that, you know, could, can be in that relationship between blacks and whites in America because, again, of the baggage. And so I would say uh, 
uh, commit to intentional learning from other, you know, uh, from African Americans and um, let part of your learning be through relationship. You know, for example, one of the reasons, another kind of reason I wrote this book is to be a discussion piece between white and black Christians. So, you know, uh, as part of that committing to intentional learning, you know, grab this book, read it, or, or find, you know, an African-American friend or coworker or colleague say, hey, I've been reading this book. Hey, it, it has questions at the end of it. Can I just bounce some of these questions off of you? Get into a dialogue. Um, and that's where uh, some of that, that learning can be cultivated. Um, uh, learn through relationships, but also don't exclude resources, book, podcasts, and things like that. And uh, be intentional about it because uh, the emotional distance that I talk about in the book between white and blacks can be closed, and uh, we can work. We can work. Uh, we can work to solve this this thing together, particularly in the body of Christ. So, well, that's such that's such great advice. I, I was heavily convicted a few months ago when a friend of mine said, "How many?" African-American podcasts do you listen to, mm. preachers do you listen to, sermons do you listen to, yeah. or books that you read, and I thought none, yeah. none at all. So I started changing that, and it has broadened my perspective quite a bit. There's great content out there that I just overlooked, and I never went into it intentionally trying to avoid because of skin color. I think that, like you said, we all have our lane that we tend to stay in or what we're comfortable with or what we've always known. But pushing beyond those boundaries is such a, a helpful thing for understanding and then obviously bridging the, the great divide. Yeah, actually, you mentioned the podcast, and I'll throw this out real quick. And this is a podcast that actually was here in St. Louis, and it's a podcast call, called We Live Here. And I think it may be in the third or fourth season of podcasts, but it's a podcast that is at the intersection. What they say is it's at the intersection of race, religion, and culture, and they and a lot of the stuff is in, is about St. Louis, but I'm sure it it will. I mean, kind of the things that they talk about, whether it is, you know, they talk about redlining, you know, they talk about. Um, uh, you know, housing covenants and all those type of things. They talk about education. They talk about churches, and so. But it's a really good podcast. That uh, it's not a Christian podcast, but it's a podcast that would be very helpful and open your eyes to a lot of systemic things. That's great. Well, I appreciate that that advice. Well, again, the book is called "Dear White Christian," and you can find it anywhere. I think I I found it on Amazon. Is that the best place to get it? You can definitely get it on Amazon. I think the PCA online bookstore, you can get it a little bit cheaper, and then they get your, they give you a break, too, if you bundle it. But it's PCA online bookstore, I think, .org or something like that. And uh, Okay. Yeah, so like if you're doing, you know, church or, or small group and different things. But yeah, you can, it's out there. That's great. Well, Aaron, I, I'm so grateful that you wrote the book and really grateful that you chose to to come on a podcast with somebody you'd never heard of or met before. <laughs> and I know you're a Cardinals fan, and I'm a Royals fan, but hey, you know, we don't cross paths very often. The last time we did in 85, we won. So anyway, <laughs> that's right. not that I'm still celebrating. Uh, listen, buddy, I, I'm so grateful. So thank you for being on the show, and thank no you problem. for your contribution to the kingdom of God. Yeah, glad to be a part, and uh, no, let me know in any way how I can serve you, your listeners. I'd be more than happy to do that.